Welcome to the Grace Point Church Podcast. Here at GPC, we want you to know God, love people, and live sent. From wherever you're listening, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. If you want to learn more about Grace Point, head over to gracepointchurch.net. And now, this week's message. We do need to come to the end of ourselves. We live in a world that is obsessed with self-help. In 2020, it was a $10.4 billion industry, just the self-help world, just the, the, the life coaching and the diet coaching and the gyms and the, everything about motivational speakers and everything about making your life better, $10.4 billion. It's anticipated by 2025, it will be up to $14 billion. So it's as if our world is getting more complex, as if we need more help and more help, and there's more industry demand for it, that we need help in becoming a better version of ourselves. And I want to talk today about the best self. Now, please understand where I'm going with this, because this is what we might need to realize today, that what if my best life doesn't begin or end with me? having my best life? What if my best life doesn't begin and end with me having my best life? Sounds like a kind of a horrible riddle to try to figure that one out, but we're living in a day, again, of self-help that's really feeding a narcissistic culture that when we are trying to become better versions of ourselves, and there is nothing wrong with being the best version of yourself. Don't get me wrong, all right? Uh, be the best version of yourself. But if it's not, maybe that is not the highest mark of the best life that you could live. What if it was deeper than that? I'm reading a book right now, part of my summer reading right now, called When Narcissism Comes to Church. I'm telling you, it's a page turner. It is one of those that has hit me with conviction. It's hit me with, oh my goodness, how have I represented this? Or how have we created ministries in the church that feed a narcissistic culture, that feed narcissistic Christianity? It's like we have done some very harm to the body of Christ where we have made it about Again, focusing on better, better, better of ourselves where sermons are about three points to a better life or how to have a better marriage. And really all it is is theistic deism where it's a moral theistic deism where we're trying to make you better morally with a little help sprinkled in by God. But if what was deeper than that? What if what we are doing is just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic? That we're still a sinking ship and that we have missed the... The, the deeper things of our life and what we have created in this narcissism, this book points out, is that we have created a nurturing of a false self versus the true self. We feed this, this false self in, in, in an unhealthy way. Here's one paragraph I want to read from the book. Because the exposure of self to self lies, self to self lies, where literally myself would be lying to myself. At the heart of a neurotic shame, escape from the self uh, is necessary. The escape from self is accomplished by creating false self. The false self is always more or less than human. The false self may be perfectionist or a slob or a family hero or a family scapegoat. As false self is formed, the authentic self goes into hiding. 
Years later, layers of defense and pretense are so intense that one loses all conscious awareness of who one really is. And I want to say that, excerpt from the book, When Narcissism Comes to Church, that is what somewhat the church has aided and abetted in this whole creating of a false self. That we have made it about us. When we talk about being a beautifully imperfect church that we are, and as we've been emphasizing that throughout this series, that my church is beautifully imperfect, what we're wanting to do is we're wanting to raise the beauty, we're wanting to diminish the imperfections. You can't diminish the imperfections by covering it over with some facade, some false self of beauty, but actually you've got to deal with the brokenness. You've got to deal with the, with the sin. You've got, you can't just cover it over and create a false self. That's true of the church, but that's true of us as individuals because we as individuals collectively make up the church. And so we have, again, aided and abetted in ourselves to the glory. We cannot amplify that, that, that beauty because that beauty is not ourselves. It's the glory of God, as I emphasized last week in Ephesians 3.21. It's that glory of God being manifest in his church. That is where the beauty is. And again, if you want to learn more about being a part of a beautifully imperfect church, then on August the 20th, I want to invite you to, to on a Saturday morning to just hang out with us, pastors, leadership, some of our elders, uh, and, and just kind of get in on the inside of who we are. And we're not going to try to mask over what we are and who we are. We're going to be who we are, and we're going to show you that. And hopefully, if God is calling you here, and I don't try to talk anybody into being a part of our family. If God calls you here, you are here, and you should be here. If God hasn't called you here, then you need to be wherever God has called you. And so that's something for you to look at. But here's what I want to encourage everyone in this room, whether you're watching online today or you're in this room, and that is you need to be looking for a body of Christ in all of its beauty and imperfection that you can be a part of that will make of you not a false self and feed a false self, but will go to that authentic, real self and deal with you at a heart and soul and mind level like never before. So many, and I will say this, among the narcissist uh, culture that we live in, narcissists look for a church for what it will give them. I like their kids' programs. I like the preaching. I like the worship style. I like their service times. And they look for what it will give them. I want to challenge you as a Christ follower, you need to look for a church for what it will ask of them. What is it going to make of you? at a deeper heart and soul level. Because it's not just what does the church give me, but what is the church asking of me, making of me, calling me to, calling me up to, and it's challenging me to go deep inside as the Spirit of God and the Word of God works inside. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it like this, the church is the church only when it exists for others. When we understand that I, the, the church, that we belong to the church and we are part of the church, but it's not just so that I can belong and get fed and warm and happy, but it's actually I'm a part of a church that's actually asking of me, calling me out, so that I would exist for the others, 
The ones that are in the body or the ones that are outside the body or the one not a part of the church. And I understand that is what a New Testament church is. And if, by the way, if you want to read Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Cost of Discipleship is absolutely a must reading for any follower of Christ who wants to get beyond this surface level following Jesus. You need to read Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Take your Bibles and let's look at Titus and let's read where Paul is dealing with this. Paul is pastoring, is leading, is discipling, is seminary class, if you will, Pastor Titus and helping Titus to become a better pastor of people. And we kind of come to a passage when he's really kind of speaking directly to Titus in what his role is as a pastor in leading the church. And whenever we get into this, I want you to notice, again, what the role of that pastor is uh, in verse 15, but let's begin reading in verse 11. For the grace has appeared, bringing, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. So there's a present working of God in us. There's also a future anticipation of God's work, the blessed hope of his appearing in the glory of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself the people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, Titus. Declare these things. This is your role as a pastor. You are to exhort, encourage people. You're also to rebuke people. There's a role in this. There's sometimes that you have to comfort people. There's sometimes that you have to confront people. The role of the pastor is not always just saying what you want to hear. Sometimes it's saying what you don't want to hear. So that no one disregards you. Again, a personal invite into the relationship between Paul and Titus here as Paul disciples him. But in this passage, in this very densely packaged passage, I want to come back to that best life idea, the best life concept, that what is it going to take to get to that best life? What's the mathematical equation? What needs to be a part of my life as I move towards, hopefully, to a better version of myself, but not just a masked over false self, but a true deep down self? And again, I say this, it doesn't necessarily, your best life doesn't begin with you, nor does it end with you. Your best life actually begins with God. In fact, here's three measures of the best life. There's one measure, and that is the good God. Who who are we dealing with? What is the first part of the equation? To understand that we have a good and gracious God who comes to us. This is Christmas in July, okay? But if we were going to put this on a mathematical equation, good God plus, and we'll fill those others in, But let's get the first part of the equation in place, first of all, if we're going to understand what a good life is, and that is in understanding this good God. Christmas in July looks like this, because it says this in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, has shown up, has come to this earth. The grace of God has appeared. 
It's not as if it's some feeling, some vibe. Grace is not an ointment you put on. Grace is not a way you walk across a stage. Grace is a person. And that personification of grace, grace appeared. Jesus appeared. This is literally referring to the Christmas story. And when that grace appears, what does that grace appear to do? Bringing salvation for all people. The good life starts with a good God. The best life starts with a good God. When he shows up, and when he shows up, he doesn't show up to just make us feel better about our false self. He makes us to save us, to rescue us, to redeem us, to pick us up out of the muck and the mire of our lives, and to make us his own. The grace of God brings salvation. The grace of God personified in Christ. It's not an ointment. It's not a vibe. It's not an attitude that you have. It's not a way you walk across the stage. Again, it is a person, and the person's name is Jesus. And that's why it says in Acts 4.12, it says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given by which man must be saved. Jesus is not just a way. He is the only way to connect with God. John 14.6 I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. See, the fact that the good God comes to a broken world should never get old of us hearing. Because God could have wiped his hands of us, moved on from us, rebooted the world in all of its order, but he didn't. He came to redeem it. And to stand in the gap, he put God in flesh, grace in flesh, when Jesus comes and appears among us. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, he says, uh, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men. It's the man Christ Jesus. Here's my friend. You can ask me to pray for you, and I'll pray for you any day. You send me a prayer request, I'll pray for you. I will stop what I'm doing. I'll even tell you what I'm praying for but I don't have any magic. I don't have the magic words. I don't have a red line to heaven. I don't have any more hotline. My prayers go through one mediator, and that one mediator takes my prayers to God, the Father. And that one mediator is Jesus Christ. And so I want to kind of pause here for just a moment. Say, if we want to have the best life, we got to start with a good God. And that good God came to us so that we could be in relationship with him. And he sent his son personified in grace, his grace being him himself, so that we, he would bring us salvation. That's the reversing of the Christmas gift. He actually brings us the gift of salvation. And if you don't know Jesus today, If you're watching online right now, you can pray and say, Jesus, I recognize I need you. Jesus, you are grace. You are that unmerited favor. I do need you. I want you. Jesus, make me your child. See, the best of us must start with the worst of us. We've got to start with the fact that I need salvation. And when the worst of us encounters the person of Jesus, the personified grace of God, the best life is reborn in us. It starts with the worst of us, meeting the best God that we have. Number two, there's a good life. So if we're building out a mathematical equation here, it starts with a good God. 
a good God coming to us, but moving from us, and you join it with a good life. What's this good life? That Jesus is literally wanting to change the true self of who you are. Don't mask it. Don't, don't fake it till you make it. It's one of those that his grace comes not only to save us, but to change us and to make us into that best version of ourselves. Look closely at verse 12. So we go from the grace of God appearing in verse 11 to save us. Then it goes on to verse 12 where the grace of God is going to do what? Now it's going to train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. I love that statement. That he calls us, literally, he's training us. And this train word is actually a very unique word in the Greek language in that it only appears one time in all the New Testament. Now, the word train is translated, if you do a concordance check on this, the word train is translated several times. Paul uses the word train a ton of times. But this is the only time this particular word is used in the Bible, okay? So whenever you're trying to do grammatic studies and understanding the languages, how then do you understand the full weight and the nuance of that? You have to go outside the Bible and find other places in Greek literature where that same word is used and how was it used then to really get the full breadth and depth of that word. Well, this is what that word is used and translated to mean. It means to instruct, to produce, or behavior that is becoming and shows good judgment. It's the ability that, that His grace is going to train us, steer us into a better behavior, a better life that's producing what good judgment looks like. We're not driven by our passions. We're not div- driven by our personal interest or ideologies. We're driven by a godly work of His grace in us that's moving us to a self-controlled life, an upright life, a godly life in this present age. Now, that's kind of hard because you think, okay, that means I've got to be perfect. I've got to be God. Listen, it's not about perfection. It's about direction. It's direction over perfection. How is God moving you? What is He changing in you? How is he working in you? One of my most common questions I'll ask people when I'm just randomly with somebody is what has God taught you lately? What is your next step of obedience? What is God moving in your life? What's he chiseling away in your life? What's he showing about yourself right now that you don't necessarily like to address, but it keeps reoccurring and it's got to be addressed in your life. He does a sanctifying work. But some people just want to forget the past want to fix the past. Well, here's a life principle for you. God doesn't fix our past. He sets us free from our past. Our, our past, in all of its brokenness, He is wanting to break and, and set us free from it. And that's the work of grace inside of us. So it's a good God followed by a good life that God is working inside of us, working out of us. Alcoholics Anonymous is an incredible uh, concept. Uh, I, I don't know much about the organization of today, but I do know about the organization of its founding and 
I know there's been many other Christian versions that have come off of it, but Frank uh, Buckman, uh, a Lutheran minister, uh, actually was a part of the founding and writing of the 12 Steps program to help people find freedom from their addiction to alcohol. Now, what we've learned over time is that the same 12 steps will work on addictions to pornography, will work on many other addictions in our life, wherever you might be struggling, food addictions even. Uh, Wherever the addiction may be, the 12-step program tends to get us on a better, healthier path to a new life, a better direction for a new life. Let me, give, let me give you just a couple of the 12 steps. One, and maybe you know these because maybe you've gone through the program, maybe you can give testimony to it, but the first one is that we have to admit that we're powerless over our addictions. That's step number one. That's ground floor number one. You have to wake up one day reaching the end of yourself, like we just sang about, where you reach the end of yourself say, I can't mask over this anymore. I can't put any more false self on this. I have reached the end of myself, and I can't fix myself by myself which is exactly what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The very first beatitude means we have to reach a point of bankruptcy in our own spirit. The next of the 12 steps, that you came to believe that 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 a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Now, that's not how it was originally written. How it was originally written is that Jesus saves. It literally named the name of Jesus when it was first authored. Then it was morphed and, I would say, watered down when it says something saves. They've gone back to at least a personification of some, a power greater than ourselves. But I want to insert that Jesus saves. He doesn't just save us from our past. He saves us from our present, and he saves us into the future. Are you living in that salvation? Because it starts with understanding that there's a good God. It moves to, to, okay, I want a good life. But it lands, and it doesn't end just there, that I have a good life, but it ends with good works. When you look at verse 14, you find that he gave himself for us to redeem us from the lawlessness and purifying for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous. Zealous. In fact, the Greek word here, zealotes, is where we get our English word, zealous. Meaning the capacity, the state of a passionate commitment that what, what, what God is calling us to is not just a good life where we have a good life about ourselves, a warm fuzzy about our life. But no, it doesn't begin with us, begins with a good God. It doesn't end with us. Yes, a good life is in there, but it also, it ends with good works. And the good works is not about us, it's about others. And how can I be zealous about good works in pouring my life into others. Whenever you look at this mathematical equation, where does the good God, where does the good life land? It lands in good works. That's where it lands. 
And whenever you read through the pastoral letters of Paul's to Timothy and to Titus, what he's all through there is calling the churches of Ephesus, the churches of Crete. He's saying, listen, Pastor Timothy, listen, Pastor Titus, what you're leading your people to is not just a better life for themselves, but a life that gives themselves in service, in good works. Here's just a sampling, 1 Timothy 2.10. Women profess godliness with good works, having a reputation of good works, chapter 5, verse 10. Good works are obvious, 1 Timothy 5.25. 1 Timothy 6.18. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share. There's nothing about that that says anything about selfishness. It says everything about selflessness. See, the whole best life doesn't end with me, begin with me. It begins with God and it ends with me living a selfless life in service of others. Titus 3, 8, I want you to insist on these things so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves not a passive, not an occasional, not whenever it's convenient, but devote themselves to good works. Titus 3.14 says it again. He ends the chapter with it, ends the letter with this. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so to help the cases of urgent need, not to be unfruitful. I don't want to live an unfruitful life. Three Chapters in the book of Titus, five different times, he calls the church to good works. You read the book of Revelation, and there's seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation. Some people have said these seven churches represent seven churches of our day. There's a lot of validity in that. But of those seven churches, five of the seven churches, Jesus addresses those churches, and one of the first words he says to those churches is this, I know your I know your works. Sometimes he knows them in the negative. Chapter 3, verse 15. Sometimes he knows them in the good. Chapter 2, verse 2 of Revelation. The, the net net of what I'm leading to this to is, guys, if we really, really want the best life, the best life doesn't begin with us. It is a part of our life and God changing our life to this day, making us a better self. Yes, absolutely. But it ends with a life flowing of good works that come out from us. I can remember whenever I was in junior high and I realized the re- revelation came to me that the answers to the math equations were in the back of the book. You remember those days whenever that became a reality to you? And I can remember turning in my first assignment, and it was perfect. But what did the teacher ask me to do? Show your work. If you really know the answers, show your work. If you really know Jesus, show your work. And that's what Jesus says. He says, your love for one another will prove to this world, that you are my disciples. Next Sunday, we're going to be having a strategy meeting, and, and it is important, and I hope every member will be here. It's one of those that it's rare, okay? So we're, it's going to be important. All the information's on there. You can check it out. But the next week, the first week in August, I'm starting a new series of message called The Jesus Calling. And I'm emphasizing the Jesus Calling. 
I think there's a lot of a Jesus callings out there. But I want to talk about the Jesus calling, and this is not a call that you want to miss. And we're just going to be looking at different places in the Gospels where Jesus calls out his people to be his disciples. And what does that look like? Because it is different than just masking. It is different than faking it. And when this whole thing happens, we are called not just to make a better version of ourselves. We are called to take the better version of ourselves and to pour it down into the next generation. In your same passage of Scripture there, we're in chapter 2 of Titus. Go to the beginning of chapter 2 and look at these seven verses. Listen to what Paul calls the church to do. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So make sure that when you're teaching, Titus, you're spot on with truth. And by the way, have those older men... Be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. The word self-controlled is throughout the book of Titus, by the way. Sound in faith, in love, and steadfast. And older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior and, and not slanderous and slaves to wine and, and, um, and teach what is good so to train the young women. You hear that? The older generation has a responsibility to the younger generation to make sure that this generation gets down to the next generation what is true and what is right and what is good. And if this generation doesn't get it down to the next generation, we don't blame and fault and curse the Gen Zs. We look at the generation before first and say, where did we miss it? What do we need to do right now to course correct? Raising up narcissist Christians is not the way to do it. But a good God doing a good work in us, resulting in good works from us, that's what he calls us to. So let me just say this, and I want to read one more passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 and 10. And again, most of y'all will have heard this before, but this is what it says. It says, for by grace, again, the personification of grace, the person of grace is Jesus. For by Jesus, you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works. Okay, now he sounds like he's contradicting. So what about the good works? No, no, no. You're not going to get there by doing good works. Otherwise, you'd be able to boast about it. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Same phrase that he uses with Titus and he uses with Timothy. Calls us to a life of good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You'll hear us saying this phrase around here a lot. Serving matters, serving matters, serving matters, serving matters. Serving matters because we're saved to serve. Let me say it again. Serving matters because we're saved to serve. He saved us so that good works would come out of us. A part of those good works is making that this generation gets it down to the next generation. Let me just show you a picture right now. There's a point of application that just in our ministries as we get ready to kind of move into the fall, where, where's our next generation? Where are our needs in our next generation? Well, I'm just going to have them pop it up on, on, on the screen. we got preschool physicians. This is how many physicians it takes week over week, 50 Week over week is what it takes every week to train up your little birth to 
five-year-olds, okay? And then elementary, okay, 45 is what it takes every week. We have 12 positions. We have 10 positions open in the preschool. We have 10 position, 15 positions open in student ministry. It takes every week on a Wednesday night, 34 at least, to accomplish the mission. 37 open positions. This is not a recruitment tool, okay? Please don't hear it. It's a calling to recognize a good God, does a good work, gives us a good life, so that from that, there would be good works coming out of our life. We have a little tool, and if you want to fill it out, instrument, if you will, it's called the shape assessment. You can use QR code scan that if you want to. It's basically what you do is it helps you process as you pray through, what is my spiritual gifting? What is my heart? What are my abilities? Where has God worked in my life? How has he shaped me personally? Uh, my experiences, don't waste your experiences. You've got experiences that I don't have. You have we all have that. What, how has God shaped me in the midst of all of that so that he can use me for his good and for his glory? A lot of those positions that I put up there are an hour, hour and a half a week. Literally, that, that, that's maybe for some, it may be just an hour. Maybe for others, it may be two hours. But somewhere between that hour and hour and a half a week, that's the commitment. I mean, come on, guys. I hope that next week there's zero open positions. If we're really going to live out the work of God in us from this generation to the next. But you know what? There's more than that. There's the opportunity that God may want to use your life on a whole new level, at a whole new depth, 24-7 in other people's lives. So when I talk about the good life being manifest, okay, hour and a half, okay, what about 24-7, what about 365, what, about, what, what, what would that look like? I want to I close today with a story, and I'll let you hear from people in our church and how God worked inside of Kara to link up with Crystal, to link up with the Wynn family, and how God just used different people in different times, and how all of them just said, God, use me. And how God has been right. I don't know if to call this the Kara story, God story, the Crystal God story, or the Wynn God story, and I think the answer to that is yes. Because God works in this person, then he works in this person, he works in this person, it's a part of the good work of God that he wants to do. Watch this story. In college, I had the inkling that God was like pointing me towards foster care, but I had no clue what that even meant. I didn't have anyone necessarily, like my family wasn't fostering. And then one Sunday, um, I can't remember who it was, if it was Mike or a guest speaker spoke on James 127 talking about caring for the orphans and for the widows. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm supposed to do that. Like it, it just like a light bulb came on and it made sense to me that that was something that I should do. So at the age of 25, I started filling out my paperwork and going to meetings most of the time terrified, but just knowing that I was stepping out in obedience and it was what God calls us all to do and it just made sense for me to be my next step. Hi, my name is Crystal. Um, well, whenever I first got put into foster care, um, she showed up at the DHS office and 
the first thought that went into my head was strawberry shortcake because of her hair. Yeah, uh, she moved in on Friday, and that Sunday I said, hey, we're going to church. I, like, I just felt like it was such a black hole that weekend, you know. You know, it was so new for her and that transition and that being so hard and me just trying to figure out a new routine for um, what my family unit now looks like. And yeah, so I started taking her to church on Sunday. And then when youth group happened, I took her there. I gave my youth group girls a heads up and I just welcomed her with open arms. I feel like from like the couple months that I was with her, you could really tell that she loved God and that. She was, she was going to do anything to, to let me know that he loved me. For the way my brain, like my brain denied really anything that was positive at that point, just because the one person that was supposed to care for me didn't. Um, but every day she woke up and she showed up and she did everything that was possible um, for her to let me know that I was loved and that she was gonna be there no matter what. So I sat down with my adoption specialist and I told the, I told her that um, staying at Grace Point was like my main priority because I found that all of those people at Grace Point were, were my family and they were my friends and that they weren't ever going to leave me. And to find out that I actually got my wish was probably the happiest moment of my life. Um, my name is Jason Wynn, um, my wife Christine Wynn, and my newest oldest daughter, Crystal, um, and we've been going to Grace Point for about seven years now. We've always, my wife and I, had a heart for adoption. It's been in our families, um, so we always knew that we wanted to do that in some capacity, so we, we started the adoption process and, and got all our credentials and, and that process rolling and uh, that fell through and we decided we were going to keep our house open and, and see what came about if anything and um, lo and behold due to personal connections at Grace Point we learned about Crystal. And Kara and I's relationship started at Saving Grace before either of us went to Grace Point. And then just randomly, I knew she was a foster mom, and I don't even think she knew that we were an open family. And she mentioned something about eventually coming up, her kid would have to find an adoptive family. And I was like, well, we are an adoptive family, and these are the reasons why we have not matched yet, and which we understand because it's what's best for the child, not find us a kid that we just hadn't matched yet. So I asked her and she goes, no, you should definitely inquire. So she told her worker and I told our worker and then that got the ball rolling of finding out if we were a compatible match for Crystal. I think that for me, like getting each parent alone and just spending time with them, like they're like for a while I thrive off of that. Um, and so to like other people, like people at school, like think it's like really dumb. But like for me, like going to the store with him, it could be like on a Saturday whenever we both have off, going to the store looking at Legos. Like, like that's just like, <laughs> um, 
Like that's just something that like with our relationship that I thrive off of. I think it's hard in the moment knowing what God's plan and purpose is because you can't see the big picture and you don't understand. But I know in different aspects of my life, I've always been able to look back and be like, that makes so much sense. He knew what he was doing, even though I was fighting him the entire time. And not that God or me and Jason wanted Crystal to go through what she went through. Because if we could take it back, we would. But she's here and she's a part of our family. And we're just so blessed to be able to give her the safe place to land after. So I think it's easy for people to see Christina and I and see our story and our story with Crystal as that we're extra and we're special people, but really we're just normal people. We're broken too. There wasn't anything special about us of why maybe we've got chosen for this, but I think that God saw that we were willing to step up stand in the brokenness and that's I think that's the biggest takeaway I want people to get from this that it's not necessarily go out and make friends with a foster family because you may get to adopt their kids but it's more so you see two women who are broken themselves stepping into brokenness and willing to stand up and love on God's children just like he asked us to. Thanks for listening to the Grace Point Church podcast. To stay up to date on all things GPC, follow us at Grace Point NWA on Facebook or Instagram. As you go, be people who show and share Jesus in everyday conversations with everyday people. Live Scent.